evidences of regeneration. Finally, concerning all these things, we should carefully ask whether we take delight in such a life as this, and that notwithstanding all the opposition, ridicule, and contempt of the world, among the different acts or kinds of obedience, also particular attention is due to those which involve peculiar self-denial. When the avaricious man becomes generous and charitable, the ambitious man contented with his circumstances, the proud man humbled, the wrathful man meek, the revengeful man forgiving, and the sensualist sober, chaste, and temperate, in a word, when we drop our reigning sins and assume the contrary virtues of set and cordial purpose, we are furnished with strong reasons to believe that we are Christians. Sixthly, the increase of all these things in the mind and life is perhaps the clearest of all the evidences of personal religion. Paul informs us that he did not count himself to have apprehended. That is, he did not consider himself as having attained that degree of excellence which belonged to his Christian profession. But, saith he, this one thing I do, or perhaps is the omission in the text is supplied by Doddridge, this one thing I can say, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, in the Greek reaching out eagerly, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What was the conduct of Paul in the duty of all Christians, and is accordingly enjoined by him in the following verse? In greater or less degrees, it is their conduct also. They are directed so to run that they may obtain and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men. As it is the duty of Christians to fulfill these precepts, so it is the nature of Christianity to accord with them by increasing from time to time their strength and vigor. The more the spirit of the gospel is exercised, the more we love to exercise it. The more the pleasure found in it is enjoyed, the more it is coveted. The more habitual its principles and practices become, the greater is the strength which they acquire. Indeed, nothing is vigorous and powerful in man besides that which is habitual. Hence it is plain that investigating our religious character, we should examine it with a particular reference to its growth. To grow is its proper nature. If it is not seen to grow, then we either do not see it as it is, or it does not exist in us in its genuine character, but is feeble, fading, sickly, clogged with encumbrances, and in a great measure hidden from view. Man is never for any length of time stationary. Either he is advancing or receding, and everything which pertains to him, and in religion as truly as in his natural endowments or acquisitions. Declension in religion, I need not say, furnishes a melancholy evidence that we are not religious. It is no less obvious that a regular progress in its various graces and attainments must, on the contrary, become a clear and delightful testimony of our Christian character. There is not only more of religion to be seen in ourselves, but it is discerned with clear conviction and certainty to be genuine, because it appears as real religion naturally appears in its own proper character of growth and improvement. He who loves, fears, and serves God more and more, who is more and more just, sincere, 
and merciful to his fellow man, and who is more and more self-governed in all his appetites and passions, weaned from the world and spiritually and heavenly minded, cannot lack the best reasons furnished in our present state to believe that he is a child of God. The Evidences of Regeneration Difficulties Attending The Application of These Evidences to Ourselves In the last discourse but one, I propose from these words to examine first some of the imaginary evidences of regeneration, secondly, some of the real evidences, and thirdly, some of the difficulties which attend the application of the real evidences to ourselves. There has been much debate in the Christian world concerning the faith of assurance, or as it is in better language style by Paul, the full assurance of hope. The question debated has, however, not been whether men felt assured that they were Christians, but whether this assurance has been evangelical or built on satisfactory and scriptural evidence. That such a faith has existed I have no doubt, nor do I see how it can be rationally doubted that the apostles were evangelically assured of their own piety and consequent salvation must be admitted by all who believe the scriptures. I have fought a good fight, says Paul. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We know, says John, that we have passed from death unto life. From the accounts given us concerning the first martyrs, I think we cannot hesitate to admit that they also were the subjects of the same faith. Nor is the evidence concerning a number of those who have lived and suffered in modern times less convincing to me. These men have, in various instances, lived in a manner eminently evangelical, have devoted themselves through a long period to the service of God with so much humility, self-denial, uniformity, steadfastness, and evangelical zeal, have labored for the good of their fellow creatures with so much disinterestedness, charity, and constancy, have lived so much above the world, and with a conversation so heavenly, that when they are declaring themselves possessed of this faith, and have died with peace and exaltation, which must be supposed to result from it, we cannot, unless by willful rejection of evidence, hesitate to admit that they were possessed of this inviolable attainment. Indeed, I can hardly doubt that any man who reads their history with candor will readily admit the doctrine so far as the men to whom I refer are concerned. But if these things be admitted, it will probably be readily conceded that there are in every country and in every age where Christianity prevails some persons who enjoy the faith or hope of assurance. At the same time, I am fully persuaded that the number of these persons is not very great. If the Christians and ministers with whom I have had opportunity to converse, many of whom have been eminently exemplary in their lives, may be allowed to stand as representatives of Christians in general, it must certainly be true that the faith of assurance is not common. 
Indeed, I am persuaded that this blessing is much more frequently experienced in times and places of affliction and persecution than in seasons of peace and prosperity. Severe trials and sufferings furnish of themselves clearer proofs of the piety of those who are tried than can ordinarily be furnished by circumstances of ease and quiet. The faith which will patiently submit, which will encounter, which will endure, which will overcome in periods of great affliction, has in this very process both acquired and exhibited peculiar strength, and furnished evidence of its genuineness which can hardly be derived from any other source. At the same time it is, I think, irresistibly inferred from the declarations contained in the word of God, and from the history of his providence, recorded both within and without the scriptures, that God, in his infinite mercy, furnishes his children with peculiar support and consolations in times of peculiar trial, and that as their day is, so he causes their strength to be. Among the means of consolation enjoyed by Christians, none seems better adapted to furnish them with the necessary support under severe distresses than an assurance that they are children of God. Accordingly, this very consolation appears to have been given to the suffering saints of the Old and New Testament as a peculiar support to them in their peculiar trials. From analogy it might be concluded... And from the history of facts it may with the strongest probability, if not with absolute certainty, be determined that the same blessing has been given in times of imminent affliction to saints in every succeeding age of the church. Still, there is no reason to think that the faith of assurance is generally attained among eminent Christians. This fact has sometimes been called in question, sometimes denied, and oftener wondered at. Why it is inquired are not Christians oftener, nay, why are they not generally assured of their gracious state? There certainly is a difference between sin and holiness sufficiently broad to be seen and marked. The scriptures have actually marked this difference with such clearness and exactness as to give us ample information concerning both the nature and the limits of these great moral attributes. They have separated those who possess them into two classes, not only entirely distinct, but directly opposite to each other. So opposite that the one class is styled in them, the friends and the other, the enemies of God. Further, they present to us various means of judging by which we are directed as well as encouraged and enabled to try and estimate our own religious character. The subject is also so spoken of in the scriptures as naturally to lead us into the conclusion that these different characters may be distinctly known and that it is our duty so to act as upon the whole to form satisfactory views concerning our moral condition. Finally, the writers of the New Testament, and indeed of the Old also, speak of themselves as knowing their own piety, and of others as able to know theirs. To these observations I answer in the first place that holiness and sin are in themselves thus clearly distinguishable. Angels cannot but know that they are holy, and sins that they are sinful. Secondly, this difference is sufficiently marked in the scriptures. If we saw holiness in ourselves exactly as it is exhibited in the scriptures, that is unmixed, we should certainly know ourselves to be holy. Thirdly, holy and sinful men are just as different from each other as they are represented in the scriptures, but this does not enable us to determine which they are. 
Fourthly, the means furnished us in the scriptures of judging concerning our religious character are undoubtedly the best, which the nature of our circumstances will admit, and such as, if correctly applied to ourselves and known to be thus applied, would undoubtedly decide this great point in a satisfactory manner. Still, this does not infer that it usually will or can be thus decided. Fifthly, we are undoubtedly required in the Scriptures to examine ourselves, and the performance of this duty, while it is indispensable on our part, unquestionably may be and is of great importance to us, although we may not, as a consequence of it, become possessed of the faith of assurance. Sixthly, the writers in the Old Testament did, in many instances, certainly know that they were holy, but they were inspired. It will not therefore follow that others who are uninspired will, of course, possess the same knowledge of their own state. Seventhly, the scriptural writers very extensively use the words know and knowledge, not in the sense of absolute science, but to denote belief, persuasion, a strong hope, and so on, in the same manner as these terms are used in common speech. We cannot, therefore, certainly conclude from the use of these terms with respect to this subject that the divine writers expected those to whom they wrote generally to possess a faith of assurance. Finally, it is our duty to possess this faith. It is also our duty to be perfect. Yet John says of himself and all other Christians, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As therefore, notwithstanding this duty, no man is perfect, so notwithstanding the duty of obtaining the faith of assurance, few persons may actually possess it. The real difficulty is chiefly passed by in all of the observations made above, and lies in applying the scriptural evidences of holiness to our own particular cases. This subject I shall now attempt to examine in several particulars. The difficulties which attend the application of these evidences to ourselves arise from various sources. Among them, the following will be found to possess a very serious influence. First, the vast importance of the case. A case of great moment is, at all times, apt strongly to agitate our minds. Men deeply interested by any concern are therefore considered as less capable of discerning clearly and judging justly than the same men when dispassionate. As this is the subject even of proverbial declaration, it cannot need proof. The case in hand is of infinite moment to each individual. Whenever he brings it to view, he is prone to feel a degree, and often not a small one, of anxiety. It is therefore seen, together with the evidences which attend it, by the mind through the medium of disturbed feelings. Ernest wishes to find satisfaction on the one hand, and strong apprehensions, lest it should not be found on the other, naturally disorder that calm temperament which is so necessary to clear investigation and satisfactory conclusions. In this state, the mind is prone to be unsatisfied with its own investigation, fears that it has not acted impartially, suspects that it has not viewed the evidence, possessed by it, in a just light, and when its judgments are favorable to itself is prone to tremble lest they have been too favorable and the result of biased inclinations rather than of clear discernment. A presumptuous decision in its favor
However, it perfectly well knows to be full of danger and is ready to think almost every favorable judgment presumptuous. In this situation, all such judgments are out to be regarded with a general suspicion, and the mind chooses rather to continue unsatisfied and to undergo the distresses of anxiety and alarm than to hazard the danger of ill-founded conclusions in its own favor. Most Christians are, I believe, so strongly convinced that a state of anxiety will contribute to make them alive and awake to the danger of backsliding, to quicken them in their duty, and to secure them from carelessness and sloth, and that therefore it will have a happy influence toward rendering them safe is willingly to judge too unfavorably rather than too favorably of their own religious character. An unfavorable judgment, they know, does not render the character itself any worse, but only deprives them of the consolation, which, with more favorable views of it, they might enjoy. While the contrary opinion might naturally slacken them in their duty, and perhaps prevent them finally from obtaining salvation. Secondly, another source of difficulty is found in the peculiar natural character of those who are employed in this investigation. Some of these persons are naturally inclined to hope, others to fear, some to cheerfulness, others to melancholy, some are rash, others are cautious, some are ignorant, others are well informed. But the evidences which establish or should establish a favorable judgment of our Christian character are in substance always the same. As applied to persons of these different characters, they must, however, be seen in very different lights. Because, although religion is the same thing, yet so much of the peculiar natural character of the man remains, after he has become religious, as to render him a very different man from every other religious man. Paul and John were both eminently religious. Their religion was the same thing, but the men were widely different from each other. If, if Christians so eminent and excellent could differ in this manner, how much more different from each other must be ordinary Christians? How much more must the natural traits of character remain in them, particularly such as, in a greater or less degree, are sinful? The whole object, therefore, presented to the judgment of the individual, must differ and often greatly in different cases. For example, one person becomes a subject of piety after a wise, careful religious education, early and uninterrupted habits of conscientiousness, in the possession of a naturally sweet and amiable temper, in an original and regular course of filial duty, fraternal kindness, and exemplary conduct to those around him, and in the midst of a life generally commendable and lovely. Another, scarcely educated at all, possessed of a rough, gross, and violent disposition, and shamefully vicious from early life, is sanctified in the midst of scandalous indulgencies and rank habits of sin. It is perfectly obvious that these two persons will differ mightily from each other in the visible degree of that change of conduct which flows from their religion. The former will perhaps be scarcely changed at all even to an observing eye, for he has heretofore done, and in a certain sense loved to do, in many particulars, the very things which religion requires and to which it prompts. 
and thus the tenor of his life will seem to those around him much the same after as before his conversion. The latter, sanctified in the same degree, will, it is plain, change almost the whole course of his conduct, and assume a life entirely new and directly opposite to that which he led before. Nor will the difference be small in the internal state of these individuals. The sanctified affections and purposes of the former will, in many instances, so blend themselves with those which he has derived from nature and habit, as to be often distinguished with difficulty, and not unfrequently to be entirely undistinguishable. Those of the latter, on the contrary, will be wholly opposite, in most instances, to all that he has heretofore thought, felt, and designed. As the internal and external conduct of these individuals is the sole ground on which each must judge of himself as well as be judged of by others, it is perfectly obvious that the objects concerning which they are respectively to judge are widely different from each other. But this is not all. The optics with which these persons judge concerning their religious state will plainly be widely different. Our dispositions naturally influence our judgment and usually enter much more largely into the opinion which we form than we are aware. Thus a person strongly inclined to hope will almost, of course, judge favorably, when a person equally inclined to fear would in the very same case judge unfavorably concerning himself. Cheerful persons naturally entertain comfortable views concerning themselves, those who are melancholy, such and often such only, as are uncomfortable, discouraging, and distressing. The rash form bold and presumptuous opinions without hesitation. The cautious admit opinions favorable to themselves slowly, even when they are admitted upon acknowledged evidence." The ignorant must be very imperfectly fitted to consider the various means of evidence, all of which ought to be consulted, in forming our opinions concerning this important subject, while the enlightened Christian must be much more competent to draw up a well-founded determination. Thirdly, the similar nature of those which we call natural views and affections to those which are evangelical furnishes another source of these difficulties. Love and hatred, hope and fear, joy and sorrow, confidence and shame, together with various other affections and views of the mind really exist, and operate in the Christian as natural views and affections and not merely evangelical. The objects which excite these affections in both senses are often the same. The emotions themselves are also so much alike as perceived by the mind that mankind universally, and the scriptural writers as well as others, call them by the same names. When both are described by those who are the subjects of them, the description to a great extent is commonly the same. It will, therefore, be easily believed that they are so similar in their nature as when they arise from the same objects to render it difficult for the Christian in whom they exist, and at times impossible to distinguish them from each other. It will be also easily seen that when he who is not a Christian has these affections and views excited in his mind by the objects, which excite the corresponding evangelical affections in the mind of a Christian, he may in many instances find it very difficult to discern that they are not evangelical. To illustrate this subject clearly, to the view of my audience, I will consider it more particularly. A Christian loves God, His Son, His Spirit, His Law, His Gospel, His Sabbath, His Worship, and His children.
Why does he love them? For two reasons. One is their nature is agreeable to the relish of his mind. The other is they are youthful and therefore pleasing to himself. For both these reasons he is bound to love them. But when he regards all these objects with this affection, it will be often difficult and sometimes impossible for him to determine whether his emotions are merely natural, wholly evangelical, or mixed. He knows that he exercises a love to God, but may be unable to determine whether he loves a character of God considered by himself, whether he loves the divine perfections for what they are, or whether he loves God because he regards him as a friend to himself and delights in his perfections, because he considers him as engaged in operating to promote his present and eternal good. It would be difficult for most persons to determine precisely what views they would form of this glorious being if it were revealed to him that he was their enemy. As it is often difficult for the Christian to distinguish his natural affections, which so long as he is a man, he will always continue to exercise, from the corresponding evangelical ones, which he exercises as a Christian, so it must evidently be more difficult for an unrenewed man who has never had any other beside natural affections to discern that these are not evangelical. When he loves God and other divine objects, in what manner shall he determine that he loves him? only because he believes him reconciled to himself? When he delights in the divine perfections, it will not be easy for him to see that it is only because he supposes them to be engaged to promote his welfare. When he loves the scriptures, it will be difficult for him to perceive that it is only because of their sublimity and beauty, the good sense which they contain, the happy influence, which they have on mankind, and the comforting promises which he considers them as speaking to himself. When he loves Christians, it will often be beyond his power to determine that it is not because of their natural amiableness of character, the agreeableness of their manners, their friendship or kind offices to himself, and their general usefulness to others with whom he is connected. A person is quiet under provocations. This may arise from meekness, it may also arise from a sense of the wisdom, the dignity, and the usefulness of this spirit. He is kind to enemies. This may arise from the desire of obtaining the peculiar evidence that he is a good man, furnished by this exercise of Christian benevolence, from a sense of the nobleness of forgiveness, or from the danger of not finding himself forgiven. I might extend this course of thought through all the objects of self-examination and show that similar difficulties attend them all. Every Christian must, I think, have experienced them in his own case, and every person accustomed to converse much with others on the ground of their hope concerning themselves must have perceived them continually occurring in the progress of every such conversation. Fourthly, another source of this difficulty is found in the transient nature of all our emotions. By this I intend that every exercise of our affections has only a momentary existence in the mind. It rises, is indulged, and is gone. All our knowledge of its nature in the meantime exists in the consciousness of it, while it is passing, in our remembrance of that consciousness known to be imperfect, and in our acquaintance with its effects often of a character more or less doubtful. 
Few words can be necessary to show that our knowledge of these exercises gained in this manner must be attended by many imperfections. Our opportunity for viewing it while it is passing is so short and often so carelessly employed. Our remembrance of it when it is past is so far removed from certain accuracy, and its effects may be so easily and for aught that appears so justly attributed to various causes, that the whole view taken of them by the mind will frequently be obscure and its decision unsatisfactory. Hence appears the wisdom of fastening upon a course of such exercises is furnishing far better means of determining our religious character rather than resting it upon a few. A character may be successfully discerned in many exercises of a similar kind, which usually we shall attempt in vain to discover, to our satisfaction in a small number. A thousand blades of grass will in the spring give a green and living aspect to that field which with a hundred would still retain the russet appearance of absolute death. Fifthly, Another fruitful source of the same difficulties is furnished by the imperfect state of religion in the mind. This, indeed, may in an extensive sense be considered as the general source of them all. I have heretofore observed that angels cannot but know that they are holy, and fins that they are sinful. Were we perfectly holy, then, we should certainly know this to be our character. But there are particular difficulties attending this subject which deserve to be marked. The mind of every Christian experiences many alterations of holiness and sin. Temptations often and unexpectedly intrude. The objects which engross the whole heart of the sinner unhappily engage at times in greater or less degrees that of the Christian. Nor is their influence always transient. David, Solomon, and other saints mention in the scriptures sin for a length of time. Not a small number of sins are committed in thought, word, and action in the brighter and better seasons, nay, in the brightest and best. I sin, says Bishop Beveridge. I repent of my sins and sin in my repentance. I pray for forgiveness and sin in my prayers. I resolve against my future sin and sin in forming my resolutions, so that I may say my whole life is almost a continued course of sin. This is the language of one of the best men that ever lived. A still better man has said, The good that I would, that I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. After the inward man I delight in the law of God, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now the whole life, not of such men as these, but of men who, though generally of a similar character, are greatly inferior to these in religious excellence, is almost always the real object of a Christian's examination. This also is to be continually examined, the worst and the best parts alike. 
but it is plain that the comfortable evidence of our piety furnished by the prevalence of holiness in the best seasons will be always impaired by contrary evidence in periods of declension, will sometimes be rendered obscure and at others overbalanced. It is further evident that as our whole judgment will and ought to be usually made up, partly of the evidence furnished by our present state, and partly by our past judgments, and the evidence on which they were founded, evidence contradicting, impairing, and obscuring each other, a degree of confusion and uncertainty in the views of the mind concerning its religious character, will almost necessarily result in many instances from this complicated and perplexed state of things. Sixthly, no small difficulties are often thrown in our way by the backslidings of others. Many persons who are really Christians decline at times from holiness of life so greatly and so long as to excite not only the sneers and contempt, but the just censors also of those who are not Christians, and the extreme regret in the Christian discipline of those who are. Other men in cases of this nature frequently question or deny the very existence of religion. Christians do not indeed go with unwarrantable length, but they cannot avoid recollecting that frequently the persons who have thus declined were, in their view, better than themselves, and feeling the hopes which they have entertained of their own piety greatly lessened. They are compelled to doubt of the religion of these men and almost irresistibly question the reality of their own. There are other persons who strongly believe themselves to be religious and who at the same time live in such a manner as to persuade others that they are eminent Christians, who afterwards prove by their conduct that they are not Christians. Judas, Hymenaeus, Philetus, and others were of this character, and multitudes more in every succeeding age. When these persons fall, all the evidence which convinced either themselves or others of their piety is plainly proved to be unsolid, and we are naturally led to ask whether the evidence on which we have relied is a foundation of our own hope, be not the very same, or if it is known to be different, whether we have reason to think it at all better. In this way, we naturally come to suspect the grounds on which the belief of our piety has rested, and to doubt whether we are not equally deceived with them. Seventhly, I am of opinion that God, for wise and good reasons, administers His spiritual providence in such a manner as to leave His children destitute of the faith of assurance for their own good. This opinion, I am well aware, will most probably be doubted, although I entertain not a doubt of it myself. It is proper, therefore, that I should mention some reasons which induce me to adopt it. First, it is perfectly plain that the evidence enjoyed by Christians concerning their piety is in no regular manner or degree proportioned to their real excellence of character. The proof of this position is complete both from our own observation and from the history of experimental and practical religion, given us in the lives of great multitudes of eminently good men. Such men, after having enjoyed for a long time the most consoling evidence of their good estate, have, through periods also long, been distressed with doubts and darkness, and sometimes with deep despondence, and have nevertheless afterwards obtained the same consolations throughout their remaining lives. To such seasons the psalmist plainly alludes in many declarations, descriptions, and prayers. 
this. These are the seasons in which he speaks of God as hiding his face from him, and of himself as disquieted, troubled, sorrowful, mourning, is almost gone, is having his feet in the miry pit, and is overwhelmed by the billows of affliction. Such seasons are also familiarly spoken of by Christians as times of darkness and sorrow in which the light of God's countenance is hidden from them. Secondly, there is not, I believe, a single promise in the gospel to Christians as such of the faith of assurance, nor any direct intimation that they shall possess evidence of their piety proportioned to the degree in which it exists. All the promises of this nature seem to be indefinite, and to indicate that Christians shall enjoy some evidence of this nature, rather than to point out the degree in which it shall be enjoyed. The Spirit testifies with their spirits in a degree and manner accordant with His pleasure that they are children of God. It is indeed said that if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God. But the word know in this case plainly means no other than that he shall have a strong and satisfying persuasion, for it cannot be said that knowledge in the proper sense is ever attainable with regard to the subject. And this strong persuasion that the Bible is the word of God may exist without any satisfactory evidence that we are his children. Thirdly, there seems to be a plain and important reason why most Christians should be left in some degree of uncertainty concerning this subject. In all the earlier stages of their piety, and in all other cases, in which it is not eminently vigorous, they would be prone if they possessed high consolatory evidence, especially if they possessed full assurance of their renovation, imperfect as they then always are, to be at ease, to settle quietly down in that imperfect state, and in this manner to come far short of those religious attainments which now they actually make, and perhaps finally to fall away. As the case now is, their fears serve to quicken them, no less in their hopes, and by the influence of both, they continue to advance in holiness to the end of life. Fourthly, the fact is, unquestionably, as I have stated it, and it cannot be rationally denied to be a part of the scriptural providence of God. Application First, from these observations we learn the necessity of performing daily and carefully the duty of self-examination. If such difficulties attend this duty, we are bound to exercise proportionally greater care and exactness in performing it. Secondly, we are taught to rest our hopes on the general tenor of our dispositions and conduct, and not on particular views, affections, or actions. These may be counterfeited, but to counterfeit the whole tenor of a life seems impossible. I might make a remark here that Timothy Dwight, when he is speaking of resting our hopes on the general tenor of our dispositions and conduct, he means looking at our life at a whole to see whether or not we are Christians, not resting on those things to make us Christians. Ultimately, of course, we rest on the finished work of Christ. We embrace Him. But I go on, thirdly, we perceive the necessity of inquiring particularly whether we increase in holiness. Evangelical holiness increases by its own nature, though irregularly. False religious affections by their nature decline at no very late periods. Fourthly, we learn the necessity of searching the scriptures continually for that evidence which alone is genuine and on which alone we can safely rest. 
In the scriptures only is this evidence to be found. Fifthly, how conspicuous are the wisdom and goodness of God in causing the backslidings and other defects of good men to be recorded for the instruction and consolation of Christians in all succeeding ages. These evils and the distresses and doubts which they occasion attended them. Still, they were truly pious. They may attend us, therefore, while we may, nevertheless, be also subjects of piety. Sixthly, the same wisdom and goodness are still more conspicuous in the manner in which the Psalms are written. The Psalms are chiefly an account of the experimental religion of inspired men. In this account we find that many of them, particularly David, the principal writer, experienced all the doubts, difficulties, and sorrows which are now suffered by good men. It is highly probable that vast multitudes of Christians have by these two means been preserved from final despondence. Seventhly, the subject in its nature furnishes strong though indirect consolation to Christians. When they find doubts and consequent distress concerning their religious character multiplied, they here see that they may be thus multiplied in perfect consistency with the fact that they themselves are Christians and are thus prevented from sinking into despair. Eighthly, we here learn the absolute necessity of betaking ourselves to God in daily prayer for His unerring guidance in this difficult path of duty. If so many embarrassments attend this important employment, the assistance of the Divine Spirit is plainly indispensable to our safety and success. If this assistance be faithfully sought, we know that it will be certainly granted. Ninthly, we here discern the goodness manifested in that indispensable and glorious promise, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. For, cre For creatures struggling with so many difficulties to be left at all would be inconceivably dangerous. To be forsaken would be fatal. But the divine presence in the midst of all these, and even much greater dangers, furnishes complete and final safety to every child of God. Regeneration, its antecedents. Acts 16:29 and 30. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? Having in the two preceding discourses considered the necessity, the reality, and the nature of regeneration, I shall now proceed to give a history of this important work, as it usually exists in fact, and shall attempt to exhibit its antecedents, its attendants, and its consequence. The first of these subjects shall occupy the present discourse. The text is a part of the story of the jailer to whose charge Paul and Silas were committed by the magistrates of Philippi, with a particular direction that he should keep them safely. To comply with this direction, he thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. In the situation at midnight, they prayed and sang praises to God. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. 
Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The man who is the principal subject of the story had been an educated heathen, and until a short time before the events specified in it, took place was totally ignorant of the Christian religion. Within this period he must have been present, and I think not unfrequently, at the preaching of Paul and Silas. Otherwise he could not have known that there was such a thing as salvation. Probably he was induced in common with his fellow citizens to hear their discourses merely as a gratification of curiosity. Whatever was the motive, it is plain, he had gained some knowledge of a Savior, and had learned that through him men might in some manner or other be saved. The things which he had known concerning these subjects seem not, however, to have made any very deep impressions on his mind. Before the extraordinary events recorded in the verses immediately preceding the text, he appears not to have conversed with these ministers about his religious concerns nor to have felt any peculiar anxiety concerning his guilt or his danger. On the contrary, we cannot hesitate to consider him as clearly proved, by a severe treatment of them, to have been hitherto in a state of religious unconcern, a state of sinful coldness and quietude. But at this time a change was wrought in the man, great and wonderful, a change manifested in his conduct with the most unequivocal evidence. By what was this change accomplished? What was it that of a heathen made this man a Christian? Was the cause found in the miraculous events by which the change was immediately preceded? It would seem that many others who were equally witnesses of these events still continued to be heathen and experienced no alteration of character. Beyond this, it is evident from the story that the jailer did not witness him at all, and that he did not awake out of sleep until after the earthquake and all its alarming effects had terminated. Besides, when he had awaked and concluded that the prisoners had made their escape, he determined to kill himself, an effort which refutes the supposition that he had any just moral apprehensions and proves him to have been solicitous only concerning his responsibility to the magistrates. He had indeed heard Paul and Silas preach, so had many others who still continued to be heathen. Preaching, therefore, did not alone accomplish this change, otherwise it would have accomplished it in them also. An influence not common to others must have been felt by him. An influence never felt by himself before must now have produced this mighty alteration in his character. The text presents him to us in the utmost agitation and distress, and is thus agitated and distressed concerning his salvation. He called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A little before, he had thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Immediately before, he was on the point of committing suicide, a gross and dreadful crime which would have ruined him forever. A little before, nay, immediately before, he was a heathen, regardless of salvation, a foe to Christianity and the hard-handed jailer of these ministers of the gospel. But now he bade adieu to all these dispositions and practices at once, renounced his former heathenism and sin, and became a meek, humble, and pious follower of the Redeemer. 
Now he fell down at the feet of his prisoners and relied implicitly on them for direction concerning his eternal well-being. A description of the state of this man's mind in the progress of his regeneration must, in substance, be a description of the state of every mind with respect to the same important subject. The events preceding the work of regeneration are substantially the same in every mind. The work itself is the same, and its consequences are the same. The first great division of this work, what I have mentioned, is the antecedence of regeneration is commonly called conviction of sin. Of this subject, the text is a strong illustration, and will very naturally conduct our thoughts to everything which will be necessary to it on the present occasion. The jailer plainly labored under powerful and distressing conviction of his own sin and of the danger with which it was attended. Of this truth his conduct furnishes the most affecting proof. The state of mind which he experienced in which this passage of Scripture describes, it is the design of this discourse to exhibit under the following heads. First, the cause. Secondly, the nature. And thirdly, the consequences of conviction of sin. Number one, the peculiar cause of this conviction is the law of God. By the law, says Paul, is the knowledge of sin. As sin is merely a transgression of the law, and as where no law is, there is no transgression, it is clear beyond a question that all knowledge of sin must be derived from the law. To discern that we are sinful, we must of course know the rule of obedience, and comparing our conduct with that rule, must see in this manner that our conduct does not conform to the rule. In this way, all knowledge of sin is obtained. This, however, is not an account of the knowledge of sin intended by conviction, as that word is customarily used by divines. The great body of sinners under the gospel have, in some degree at least, this knowledge, and yet are not justly said to be convinced. Conviction of sin denotes something beyond the common views of the mind concerning its sins, and is always a serious, solemn, heartfelt sense of their reality, greatness, guilt, and danger. This all sinners under the gospel have not, as every man knows, who possesses the spirit of common observation, and peculiarly every man who becomes a subject of this conviction. Every such man knows that in his former ordinary state he had no such sense of sin. To explain this subject, it is necessary to observe that there is a total difference between merely seeing or understanding a subject and feeling it. A man may contemplate as a mere object of speculation and intellect the downward progress of his own affairs towards bankruptcy and ruin, and have clear views of its nature and certainty, and still regard it as an object of mere speculation. Should he afterwards become a bankrupt, and thus be actually ruined, he will experience a state of mind entirely new, and altogether unlike anything which he experienced before. He now feels the subject before he only thought on it with cool contemplation, and however clear his views were, they had no effect on his heart. His former views never moved him to a single effort for the prevention of his ruin. Those which he now possesses would have engaged him had they existed at the proper time for this purpose in the most vigorous exertions. 
just such is the difference between the common views of sin and those which are experienced under religious conviction. What before was only seen is now realized and felt. This also is accomplished by the law, felt as well as understood, brought home to the heart and strongly realized by the sinner. This fact is thus forcibly described by Paul. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He was alive, that is, in his own feelings. While he was without the law, or while the law was no more realized than it is by mankind in their ordinary state, while it is acknowledged to be the law of God, but not seriously regarded, applied to themselves, nor felt to be a rule of duty obliging them indispensably to obey. But when the commandment came, the commandment was before at a distance, scarcely seen and scarcely regarded, but now came home to him, to his sober thoughts, his realizing apprehensions. Sin revived. Sin began then first to be perceived to be his true and distressing character. It arose out of the torpid state in which it had seemed to exist before and assumed new life, strength, and terror. Of consequence, he who had hitherto considered himself while he was inattentive to the nature and extent of the divine law as a just man, safe and acceptable to God, now died, now perceived himself to be a great and guilty sinner, condemned and perishing, and all his former safety, righteousness, and life vanished in a moment. Under conviction of sin, the law is applied by the sinner to himself and considered as the rule of his own duty, the rule by which his character is hereafter to be tried, and the rule by which he himself is now to try it. Before this, no such views of the law had entered his mind, no such trial had ever been made. In this trial, the law is often solemnly, critically, and effectually examined. Both its precepts and penalties are brought home irresistibly to the heart. Before, they were things with which the sinner had little or no concern. Now he finds them to be the things with which he is more deeply concerned than with any other. Number two, the nature of this conviction may be unfolded in the following manner. In the ordinary circumstances of the mind, it is usually disposed to acknowledge that there is such a thing as sin, that it is in itself wrong, odious, mischievous to mankind, dishonorable to God, and deserving in some degree of punishment. It is usually ready to acknowledge also that itself is sinful, and of course exposed to the anger of God. With regard to sin as with regard to the law, its views are often perhaps generally just in a certain degree, but are loose, careless, and inefficacious, having no other effect on the mind than to produce at seasons rare and solitary some reproaches of conscience, and a degree of regret and fear, feeble, momentary, and easily forgotten. But when the man becomes a subject of religious conviction, he feels for the first time that sin is a real and dreadful evil. For the first time the law of God is seen to be a righteous and reasonable law, demanding nothing but what it ought to demand, and forbidding nothing but what ought to be forbidden. His precepts and its penalties are both yielded to as just, and God is acknowledged to be righteous in prescribing the former and inflicting the latter. 
Himself he readily pronounces to be a sinner, universally debased, utterly blamable, justly condemned, and justly to be punished. Instead of self-justification and self-flattery, he is now more ready to pronounce a sentence of condemnation on himself than on any other person, and is hardly brought to admit the pleas advanced by others in palliation of his guilt or in the defense of his moral character. Sin, and his own sins especially, now appear as things new, strange, and wonderful, as evils awfully serious and alarming. The law of God is now applied to himself as his own rule of duty, and obedience to it is confessed to be reasonable, indispensable, and immensely important. Every violation of its precepts, therefore, is regarded by him as a sore and dreadful evil, as guilt, which he perceives no means of wiping away, and as danger, which he finds no opportunity of escaping. An accumulation of crimes innumerable, and of guilt incomprehensible, is thus seen to have been formed by the conduct of his whole life, which to the anxious and terrified eye of the criminal has already swollen to the size of mountains, and ascended to the height of heaven. These views, it is to be remembered, are wholly new to sinners. Their novelty, of course, greatly enhances in his eyes the terrifying and oppressive magnitude of the subject. All new things affect us more when new than when by frequent repetition they have become familiar. Before, he never in sober earnest believed himself to be a sinner. To find himself, therefore, to be not only a sinner, but a sinner of so guilty and blamable a character, naturally overwhelms him with anguish and dismay. His mind also was now exceedingly alarmed and distressed by this afflicting discovery. On an agitated mind, all things with which it is concerned make deep impressions, deeper far than when it is at ease, and especially those things which produce the agitation. Such particularly is a fact in the state of religious agitation. For both these reasons, as well as from the real greatness and nature of his guilt, the convinced man is often ready to believe that no sinner was ever so guilty as himself. It is not uncommon to hear persons of no singular depravity declare that they are doubtful whether Judas was equally a transgressor with themselves. I have heard doubts expressed by persons of more than common decency and amiableness, whether Satan was not less odious to God than they were, and this reason has been alleged for the doubt that he had never sinned against forgiving and redeeming love. It is not to be wondered at that the souls to which these awful subjects are thus new, and which is thus terrified by his first views of them, should be even excessive in its self-condemnation. With the greatness of its guilt, the greatness of its danger keeps an equal pace. Scarcely anything more naturally or more commonly occurs to the mind in the situation than doubts whether such guilt as itself is accumulated can be forgiven. The mercy of God, which is declared in the Scriptures to be greater than our sins, to be above the heavens, to extend to all generations, and to endure forever, is often doubted, so far as the sinner himself is concerned. Admitted easily with regard to others, and with regard to all or almost all others, it is still doubted so far as he is concerned, and he is easily believed to be incapable of extending to him. Often he is strongly tempted to believe that he has committed the unpardonable sin, and often in much is he busied in examining what is the nature of that sin. 
Instead of self-flattery, the only employment which he was formally willing to pursue with respect to his spiritual concerns, in which he indulged in every foolish and excessive degree, he is now wholly engaged in the opposite career of self-condemnation, and not unfrequently pursues it to an excess equally unwarranted by the scriptures. Nor is he at all prone to feel that he is now equally guilty of new sin in limiting the mercy of God and informing new kinds of unpardonable sins, as before in presuming without warrant on the exercise of divine mercy towards his hardened heart. All these emotions are also greatly heightened by the remembrance of his former stupidity, unbelief and hardness of heart, his light-mindedness and self-justification, his deafness to instruction, his insensibility to the calls of mercy, the reproofs of guilt and the warnings of future woe. What before were his favorite pursuits he now considers as a means of his ruin. What before was the object of his delight is now the object of his abhorrence. That which was once his support is now his terror. That which he accounted and boasted of as his wisdom he now considers as a mere madness of bedlam. Nor can he explain to himself how such sottishness could ever have been his conduct or his character. The Bible, now, its threatenings and promises, its doctrines, precepts, and ordinances, assume an aspect wholly new, for the first time real, solemn, important, the only ground of his distress and the only source of his possible comfort. The same truth and reality, the same solemnity and importance at once invest the prayers, sermons, and other religious instructions which he has heard from his parents, from ministers, and from other persons of piety. Why they did not always, and of course, wear these characteristics is now his astonishment. Why he did not covet them, listen to them, and obey them. Madness, entire and dreadful, he now readily acknowledges was in his heart from the beginning, and has hitherto constituted his only moral character. It is not here to be supposed that this is in form an exact account of the state of every convinced sinner. In substance it may be considered as universally just. Some such sinners are subjects of far more deep and distressing convictions than others, Convictions much longer continued, respecting some of these objects more and others less, producing more erroneous conclusions, greater self-condemnation, deeper despondency, and universally more distressing agitation. Some minds are naturally more exquisitely capable of feeling than others, more prone to think, less prepared to hope to exert themselves, to reason and to admit the conclusions which flow from reasoning, less ready to receive consolation and more ready to yield to these as well as other temptations. Some have been better instructed in early life, have been more conscientious, amiable, and exemplary, and have less to reproach themselves with in their past conduct. The Spirit of God also may choose to affect and probably does affect different minds in different manners. Finally, some minds may be more surrounded by temptations and dangers, and at the same time furnish with friends less accessible, counsels less wise, and directions less safe in the season of trial and sorrow. From these and many other concurring causes it happens that in form, degree, and continuance, convictions operate very differently on different minds, nor can any human skill limit them in these respects.
It ought by no means to be omitted here that there are persons, especially of a steady, serene disposition, educated in a careful religious manner, and habitually of unblameable lives, in whom the process of conviction is conformed in a great degree to their general character. These persons, to the time of their conversion, have, not uncommonly, no remarkable fears or hopes, sorrows or joys. Conscientiously but calmly they oppose sin. Evenly but mildly they sorrow for it, and steadily but with no great ardor of feeling they labor in the duties of a religious life. In the account which they give of their religious views and emotions, there is little to excite any peculiar degree of comfort in themselves or of hope concerning them and others. Still, their lives are often distinguished by uncommon excellence. Their progress is not that of a torrent, now violent, now sluggish and stagnant, but that of a river silently and uniformly moving onward and never delaying its course a moment in its way toward the ocean. In these persons a critical eye may discern a fixed and warping love of their duty, a perpetual repetition of good works, a continual advance towards the consummation of the Christian character. In substance, however, this work is the same in all minds. All really discern the importance, reasonableness, and justice of the divine law, their own violations of its precepts, the guilt which they have in this manner incurred, the righteousness of God in punishing them for it, and the extreme danger to which they are therefore exposed. No sinner can turn from sin to holiness without seeing the evil and danger of the one and the excellence and safety of the other. No sinner can turn from sin to holiness without knowing and acknowledging his own sin and danger, the reasonableness of the divine law, and the justice of God in punishing his transgressions. Number 3. The immediate consequences of this conviction next demand our attention. On this subject, it is necessary to observe in the beginning that the sinner is still altogether a sinner. The only difference between his present and former character is that before he was unconvinced, and now a convinced sinner. Before he was ignorant of his true character, now he understands it clearly. Hence, it will be remembered, all his resolutions, efforts, and conduct will partake of his general character, and will of course be sinful. Between his conscience and his affections, there is now a more complete and open opposition than ever before. His conscience justifies God, approves of the divine law, and in spite of himself acquiesces in his condemnation, but his heart is still utterly opposed to all these things, and usually more opposed to them than ever. He is indeed afraid to sin, but it is because he dreads the punishment annexed to it, not because he hates the sin." Nor is it an unknown, nor probably a very frequent case, that these very fears become to him motives to continue in sin, and even to give himself up wholly to sinning. Under the influence of his fears, he is not unfrequently disposed to conclude that there is no hope for him, and that, therefore, he may as well and even better indulge himself in wickedness than attempt a repentance and reformation which his deceitful heart and probably all his spiritual enemies represent as too late and therefore fruitless. From this danger some it is not improbable never escape, but return like the dog to his vomit, and like the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. 
Still, I apprehend this is very far from being a common case. A very small number only, as I believe, compared with the whole, yield themselves up to ruin in this deplorable manner. Perhaps no one who persisted in his efforts to gain eternal life was ever finally deserted by the Spirit of Grace. To such as perseveringly continue in their endeavors, the next natural step in their progress, the first great consequence of conviction of sin, is to inquire most earnestly what they shall do to be saved. Of the anguish produced by such conviction, the text furnishes us with a very forcible example. No picture was perhaps ever more striking than that which is given us of the extreme agitation of the jailer in the text. He called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? An agitation not unlike this frequently occupies the hearts of others and prompts them with the same earnestness to make the same solemn and affecting inquiry. Antecedently to this period the sinner has in many instances lived without a single sober thought of asking this question at all. Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Has been his only language to repentance and reformation. The subject has never become seriously interesting to him before. Before he has never seen his guilt nor his danger. Before he has not wished for salvation. Has found good enough in the world in sin, and in sense, to prevent all anxiety about future good. Consider this as present and real, and regarded that as distant, doubtful, and imaginary. But now his danger of ruin and his necessity of deliverance appear in their full strength. In this situation he makes a great inquiry with all possible solicitude. His happiness, his life, his soul, in the utmost danger of being lost forever, are felt to be suspended on the answer. He beholds God, his own enemy, and an unchangeable enemy to sin and impenitence, now rising up to destroy him utterly, and to pour out upon him his wrath and indignation. In the deepest anguish he searches with prying eyes for a place of safety. Here he finds himself at a total loss concerning what he shall do. Here he first discovers his own ignorance of this great subject. Before he was rich and had need of nothing, had eyes which saw clearly all wisdom, understood all that he needed to know or do, and wanted no instruction nor information from others, now he first finds himself to be and to have been poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked and in want of all things. Now, instead of deciding on questions of the greatest moment and difficulty in theology, and deciding roundly without examination or knowledge, he is desirous of being instructed in small and plain things, and instead of feeling his former contempt for those who are skilled in them, he becomes humble, docile, desirous of being taught, and disposed to regard with sincere respect such as are able to teach him. At the same time, he especially betakes himself to the source of all instruction in things of this nature, the Word of God. This book he searches with all anxiety of mind to find information and hope. The threatenings and alarms which before hindered him from reading the Scriptures now engage him to read them. 
His own danger and guilt he now labors thoroughly to learn, and is impatient to know the worst of his case. Whatever he finds there recorded he readily admits, however painful, and employs himself no more either in doubting or finding fault. To the former he has bidden adieu, the latter he knows to be fruitless. However guilty the Bible exhibits him, he is prepared to consider himself as being at least equally guilty. However dangerous it declares his case to be, he is prepared to acknowledge the danger. In this distress it will be easily supposed he also searches for the means of deliverance. For these he labors with the deepest concern. Hence he reads, examines, and ponders with an interest new and peculiar, with fear and trembling, with critical attention to every sentiment, declaration, and word, with an earnest disposition of fine relief and consolation in any and every passage where it can be found. The Bible is now no longer the neglected, forgotten, despised book, which it formerly was, but his chief resort, the man of his counsel, the rule of his conduct. To him it has now become for the first time the word of God and the means of eternal life. All the difficulties which heretofore prevented him from being present in the house of God have now vanished. The disagreeable weather, the personal indispositions, the indolence which seem like an indisposition, the plainness of the preacher, the inelegance of the sermon, and the imperfection of the psalmody keep him at home no more. In the solemn place he listens to all that is uttered and watches all that is done. The preacher's words become as goads, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and marrow. At his former listlessness, he is now amazed as well as at that which he still beholds in others around him. The Sabbath, no longer a dull, wearisome day of which the hours dragged heavily and during which he could hardly find any tolerable means of passing the time, now becomes a season of activity and industry, unceasing and intense, a season waited for with anxiety and welcomed with hope and joy. The sanctuary, no longer regarded as a place of mere confinement, as a scene of tedious, dull, and meaning rites, where grave people were believed to assemble, for scarcely any other purpose except to keep gay ones in order, has now become the house of the living God and the gate of heaven, the place where he expects to find, if he finds it all, an escape from death and the way to eternal life. In the meantime, he cries mightily unto God for deliverance from sin and ruin. Prayer, long perhaps from the beginning of his life, unused, unknown, and unthought of, or if thought of at all and attempted, always a burden, now becomes his most natural conduct. He sees and feels that God alone can deliver him, and therefore irresistibly looks to him for deliverance, oftentimes indeed with fear even to pray, from the strong sense which he entertains of his absolute unworthiness, and his unfitness to perform this first, most natural, most reasonable of all religious services, sensible how impure in appearance he must make before that God, in whose sight the heavens are unclean, and whose angels are charged with folly, he feels unwilling like the publican, even to lift up his eye towards heaven, but smiting his breast, cries out with an importunate anguish, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
but he cannot be prevented from praying. His cries for mercy and those at times involuntary and ejaculatory are forced from him by the sense of his guilt and his fears of perdition. They often break out in his walks in the course of his daily employments and in his occasional journeyings. They spring from his meditations. They ascend from his pillow. The question whether a sinner shall be directed to pray has become nugatory to him and has been decided not by metaphysical disquisition but by the controlling anguish of his heart. During the season of struggling for salvation, it is no unfrequent thing for his despondency to continue, to return at intervals with more weight, and to sink him deeper in distress, according to the different states of his mind and the nature of different subjects which occupy his thoughts. It is all along to be kept in view that, as I have heretofore remarked, the state of things is very different in different persons, varying almost endlessly in a manner and degree, in some instances comparatively calm, quiet, and of an even tenor, and others disturbed, distressed, and tumultuous. Still it is also to be remembered that substantially it is the same. During the state of mind, it is further to be observed, the sinner forsakes, of course, many of his former favorite objects, especially his diversions, his gaiety, his loose companions, and his haunts of sin. These he now perceives and feels to be the seats and sources of temptation, danger, and sorrow. Hence he shuns them with vigilant care and lively dread, not from virtuous motives, but from the fear of rendering his case more dreadful and hopeless. But none of his efforts give him rest. Neither his affections, desires, nor labors are virtuous in the evangelical sense, or commendable in the sight of God. His sense of danger only, and his apprehension of the inestimable importance of escaping, originally asleep or dead, is now alive and awake. This feeling and its necessary effects constitute the only change in his condition. No real goodness, no moral excellence, nothing really acceptable to God is yet begun in his mind or supposed to be begun. To be sensible that we are sinners is not the result of virtue. There is no real goodness in being afraid of the anger of God. There is not necessarily anything holy in acknowledging that God is just in inflicting punishment, which has been deserved. These things may all exist without any hatred of sin, any love to God, or any faith in the Redeemer. The prayers which he daily offers up to his Maker are not the offspring of piety, but of terror. The child who sees a rod brought out to view and beholds correction at the door is ever ready to supplicate for pity and forgiveness, and a promise whatever may contribute to his escape from the impending danger, yet he is not, of course, a dutiful child. Still, these efforts of the sinner are useful to him. No unregenerated man was probably ever convinced except by trying his own strength that he was unable of himself to perform virtuous actions, to pray, to serve, and to glorify God. Unable, I mean in this sense, that he has no heart, no inclination to perform these duties, that he will never possess a better disposition, but by the renovating agency of the Spirit of God.
The more he labors, however, the more clearly he will perceive his services to be all essentially defective and really sinful. The more he prays, the more unworthy he pronounces his prayers. An unconvinced sinner always believes that he can pray in a manner acceptable to God. A convinced sinner readily declares that he cannot pray in a manner acceptable not to God, but even to himself. In the struggle thus continued and thus earnestly conducted, he learns how obstinate his sinful dispositions are and with what hopeless difficulties they are to be overcome. Convinced at length that all his efforts must, without the immediate assistance of God, prove entirely vain, he casts off all his dependence on himself and turns his eye to God with the feelings of Peter when beginning to sink and cries out in his language, Lord, save me or I perish. Application first. From these observations we learn the use and influence of the law of God in promoting the work of conversion. The law evidently begins this work in the soul, or perhaps in more accurate language, it begins and produces that state of thought and affection in which the soul is usually turned to God. Without the terrors of the law, the state of mind would manifestly never be produced, unless the whole tenor of divine providence should be changed. Yet this, so far as we can see, is a natural and necessary prerequisite to conversion. The sinner entirely needs thus to understand and feel his condition, his guilt, his danger, his helplessness, and his absolute necessity of being renewed by the Spirit of grace. By the law alone is he enabled clearly to see and strongly to feel these interesting things. From the same source of instruction he learns the true nature of his own efforts, for it is by a comparison of them with the standard of perfection that he sees how destitute they are of all real holiness, and how unavailing to recommend him to God. In a word from the law only does he gain the knowledge that he is spiritually sick and stands in infinite need of the divine physician. Secondly, these observations also teach us the necessity as well as usefulness of that preaching which explains and enforces the nature of the law. It is not unfrequent to hear both preachers themselves and many other persons condemn the preaching of the law. These persons dwell much on the endearing benevolence of the gospel, the riches of the divine goodness displayed in it, and the importance and wisdom of winning sinners to embrace it. On the other hand, they censor with no small severity the preaching of the law and those who in this manner attempt to alarm sinners concerning their moral condition. If the things which have been said in this discourse are admitted to be just, it must also be admitted that these persons know very little of the important subjects which they handle in this free and unhappy manner. They must plainly be ignorant of the nature both of the law and the gospel, of the sinner's danger and guilt, the means of his deliverance, the nature of both conviction and conversion, the use of convictions towards conversion, and the use of the law in exciting them. It has, I trust, been clearly shown that the law is absolutely necessary to rouse the sinner from his sleep of death, to point out to him his danger, and to induce him to seek for relief.
to the necessity of the law for this purpose, the necessity of preaching it is exactly proportioned. Nothing else will accomplish the end. So long as this is kept out of you, other things will only soothe the sinner. If he views God as merciful without any regard to his justice, as forgiving without solid reasons, without an atonement, and without the application of that atonement to himself, he will be fearfully deceived and trust in that mercy on terms and with views agreeably to which it can never be exercised. This method of decrying the divine law and the preaching of it is a dangerous method of flattering sinners to destruction and of sowing pillows under all armholes. Christ, the prophets, and the apostles acted in a very different manner. They stung sinners to the quick, pricked them to the heart with strong, solemn, and affecting representations of their guilt, their danger, and their approaching damnation, roused them from their slumbers and forced them to listen, feel, and act. The nature of the case shows the reasonableness and excellency of their example and the propriety and wisdom of following it, while at the same time it holds out the folly of those who disuse as well as those who censure preaching of this nature. We need not be at all afraid lest sinners in modern times should be more easily affected than they were in ancient times. Their hearts are by no means peculiarly tender, but like the hearts of those who lived in former days resemble the rock, and need both the fire and the hammer to break them in pieces. Some persons are probably afraid to preach in this manner, lest they should give pain to their hearers and hazard their own popularity. These men either destroy or prevent much good by standing in the place of such preachers as like Boanerges with thunder and alarm in the years of sleeping guilt and rouse a torpid soul to a sense of its danger. Thirdly, from these observations, we also learn the necessity of the gospel to the accomplishment of this great work. If the sinner were left holy to the law, he would sink and die, for it gives him neither encouragement nor hope. While the laws of mighty and indispensable use to rouse him from his sloth and awaken him to vigorous exertions for his deliverance, the gospel is the only foundation of hope that these exertions will be of any use. Without this hope, he would do nothing but despair. It is indispensable, therefore, that the gospel should follow the law in all sound preaching, that when the sinner is roused to inquire what he shall do to be saved, he may find encouragement in his glorious promises and invitations. In this manner he learns, on the one hand, his ruined condition by nature and by practice, and on the other, that safe and happy state into which he may be introduced by the grace of God. Thus, the adaptation and utility of the whole word of God to the purposes designed by it are strongly manifest the wisdom of all things contained in it is a word of life their excellency their glory and their resemblance to its author thus also is it commended to our study contemplation wonder and praise the evidences and antecedents to regeneration by president timothy dwight 1818